In the book of John, let's take a look at chapter number one, where we were a few moments ago. And with the advent of John's gospel, we're in the last of the four gospels. As we continue working with this series, they asked him this. I don't know whether we'll finish this by the end of the year. We may, but we have to take a few Sundays for some special things upcoming, like Thanksgiving and, of course, the Christmas season. So we'll see how that all works out. John has some wonderful material in it, and it's well worth our time and attention. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we make our way to John's Gospel, chapter number 1. And I want to call your attention to our text first this morning, which is verse 48. So take a look at this. And here it says this, And Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. So there's our question in verse number 48. It comes from Nathaniel, so we would certainly count him as one of the disciples. So this is not from one of Jesus' adversaries or even from just someone in, 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 in the common walks of life. Uh, this is someone that we know a little more about. This is someone whose name comes up. So we know a little bit about Nathaniel, not maybe as much as we would like. And when you look at that particular question, uh, whence knowest thou me? If we were to put that into modern parlance, in other words, uh, not using necessarily the old Elizabethan English, we'd come out with something like this. How do you know me? And Nathaniel was quite surprised that Jesus knew him because they had not met before. And so it really is a thought-provoking question, and there are going to be some interesting things come out of this. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll delve into it. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for these uh, days that you have given to us, Lord. Help us to uh, redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. Help us to look at each day as a precious gift from God. And especially the Lord's Day, as it rolls around once a week, we thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you that we have a warm, comfortable place to be, especially as the winter turns a little more uh, challenging for us, that we can be warm, that we can have a roof over our head, we can be protected from the winds. Uh, even as we saw some storms here this past week, and it reminds us, Lord, that uh, old man winter will blow in soon. We just pray, Father, that uh, you'll just watch over us, protect us in all of these days, and help us to count each one as a blessing and a gift from you. And thank you for each person that you've directed to be here today and who could be here we are mindful, and many have been mentioned who cannot be here and would surely like to be here. And so, Father, we pray you'll comfort them today, some on beds of affliction that we've heard about. We just pray especially for them, Lord, that they may have a sense of your presence, that they may have a sense that they're being remembered here by their brothers and sisters. And uh, even, Lord, in the days to come, as cards or other things are sent to them, we just pray that they will be uplifted, sustained, and strengthened by your mercies. And then, Lord, uh, for each person who physically found it able to be here today, Lord, we know that we all represent all kinds of needs, and so many of them remain in the counsels of our own hearts and aren't necessarily shared with others, and others we do share, but they are there nonetheless. And pray that as we've come, we give you now an open heart, give you our attention so that you might speak to us, that you might encourage us, that you might meet those needs as we submit them to you. And, Lord, that we may have open hearts to bring back to you in our worship those things that you uh, seek from us. Bless us now as we look at this uh, passage from John chapter 1. May each of us gain a blessing from it as we spend some time. And, Lord, would you direct my speech today, help me to be a blessing to other people. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. How do you know me? 
And so we notice that the question comes from a man by the name of Nathaniel. Let's park on that for just a moment, not too long. Do you think about the fact that we don't really know that much about Nathaniel? We know a little bit. But here's an interesting thing. He's mentioned a couple of times in the Gospel of John. We have him in John chapter 1 right here where the context certainly lends itself for us to believe that Nathaniel is one of the disciples, one of the apostles, actually. But what's really interesting about this is if you go to searching around in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't find the name Nathaniel. In the other list of the apostles, you don't find the name Nathaniel at all. And that's really interesting. You find another name. You find Bartholomew, but you don't find Bartholomew in the Gospel of John. And so while we may not be able to prove this, probably the logical conclusion is is that the Nathaniel of John's Gospel is the Bartholomew of the Synoptic Gospels. And you say, well, Wow, are you sure about that? Well, it wouldn't be uncommon at all because when you think about Peter, for example, Peter was Simon Bar-Jonah, right? And you may know this, but that word bar in Aramaic simply means son. And so he was the son of John. His, his given name was Simon. So Bartholomew is that way too. That's really not his name. It's what's called a patronymic. It's like Bar-Jonah. This is Bartholomew, and so... You know, obviously he had another name by which he was called, and uh, probably it's the Nathaniel that we meet in our particular passage. This is the whole encounter. This whole encounter that we're talking about this morning is only in John's Gospel. So that's why we haven't gotten to this any other place, because this story before us, the earliest call that Jesus, uh, when these early disciples came to Jesus, it forms the background of what you have in Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because did you ever sort of wonder about this? Did you ever read those accounts in Matthew and and Mark and so forth? And and Jesus came up to Peter, and Jesus came up to the others there as they were by the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he said, follow me, and I will make you to be fishers of men. And they immediately dropped everything and went and followed him. Did that ever sort of strike you as, wow, uh, he must have really had a compelling personality that he walked up to these people he'd never met before and said, follow me, and they dropped everything and followed him. Well, I'm sure Jesus did have a compelling personality, but there's more to it, and this is it right here, that this most this earliest of encounters with some of these disciples, we get a, a picture of it here. The story of it is really here. This is earlier than when Jesus came to them by the seashore of Galilee. The context is different. The time is earlier, and it forms the background to that story. And so it's very interesting, too, if we're looking for things about Nathaniel. It's very interesting, too, that do you know that Nathaniel in the Gospel of John is the first one who is described, who's actually described as believing on Jesus? Now, that's not to say that Peter didn't. It's not to say that Andrew didn't. It's not to say that Philip didn't. It's just that that terminology is not used. But yet, when you get down to verse number 50, take a look at this. And Jesus says this in the latter part of the verse, Because I said unto thee, I saw the end of the fig tree, believest thou? Well, that's significant. That really is significant because of what we know about John and what we know about John's purpose, that John is the gospel of belief. And he even tells us that this is his whole purpose. So think about this. I know you know this verse. I don't think we need to take the time to turn. But in chapter 20, And verse number 31, what does it say? And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus, that's the person who's coming up to these people right here, is the Christ, the Messiah. 
the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. So we know that John's gospel is all about this. These, all of the content, really, the seven signs that he chose from among the many that he said uh, Jesus worked in the presence of his disciples that were meant to bring people to faith in Christ. So it is very significant. It makes an interesting thing to think about with Nathaniel that he's the first person in the gospel and right in the first chapter who's described as having come to believe on Jesus, even though we, we certainly understand that to be true of the other ones who are mentioned here as well, yet that word is used of him. And so what we're going to do this morning is we want to look at this question because this is kind of what set the whole thing off. This is what brought him to faith in Jesus. But beyond that, I think what we're able to do is here, we're able to see a little bit of a picture in brief. May I put it that way? A little bit of a picture in brief of the journey of faith. You know, I really like that metaphor because it truly is a journey. You know, there is a, a point at which we begin this journey. There's a point at which we become saved. Up until then, we're not on the journey of faith. We don't know Christ as our personal Savior, but there is a point in time. It's no wonder that in John's Gospel, we also come across the figure of being born again, because just as birth happens at a point in time, so it's also true that the second birth happens at a point in time, and that commences our journey of faith. But there's more to it than that, so that we're going to look at this brief picture. I think we can find three stages or steps in this, that form this picture of the journey of faith right here in this story of, of uh, Nathaniel and how he originally came to trust Jesus as his Savior, and then what Jesus revealed would be more ongoing insofar as the journey of faith is concerned. So three stages to it. First of all, there's coming to Jesus. I've just talked about that. It all happens at a point in time, and it happened here for Nathaniel. And how did it come about? Well, you know, there's a time-honored pattern here, beloved, that we really should take a moment to notice because if you back up to verse number 40, you find out that the day before what happened, John had seen Jesus and he said to two of his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away, of the, sin, taketh away the sin of the world. One of those two, it says in verse number 40, who heard John say that. John gave witness to Jesus, right? And one of the two who heard John say that was Andrew. And so Andrew started following Jesus, but what's the very next thing that he did? What does it say in the verse? He first findeth his own brother, verse number 31, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And then look at this time-honored pattern. John bears witness to Jesus. Andrew begins to follow Jesus, but then finds his own brother, Simon, and brings him to Jesus. And then, look, verse number 43, the very next day, the very day following, when Jesus would go forth to Galilee, he findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. And then you notice, what does Philip do? Philip, now Philip was up at Seda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael. Now think about that, beloved, because that's what God has called us. After all, as someone has asked the question, what in the world are we doing here? Couldn't God just save us and take us right home to heaven? Well, he could. But couldn't God use angels to share the gospel with people? Well, he could. But he hasn't chosen to do that. He's chosen to use simple people like you and me who tell others and through their testimony 
people come to Jesus. You say, well, aren't people saved any other way? Well, sometimes people are saved in church. They hear a sermon and they respond to an invitation. Sometimes people hear a sermon on the radio. There's lots of ways people come to Jesus, but you know, it all boils down for the most part to people telling other people about the Lord. And that's exactly the pattern that we find in the New Testament and what a privilege it is. And so this is what happens. And think about when you think about the privilege that it is, can you imagine being Andrew and being the one to bring Peter to Jesus? That's quite a thought, isn't it? You only have to get one or two like that. I used to say if I could be like, if I could be like that old primitive Methodist pastor who, well, he wasn't even the pastor, but on that Sunday morning in January, early in January, 1850, when the snow kept a young Charles Spurgeon from finding his way to the Baptist church that he was intending to visit that, see some good things come out of winter. (laughs) When the snow kept the young boy from finding the church that he intended to go to that day, and he ended up at that primitive Methodist church, and the pastor himself was hindered from being there because of the weather, and that Layman got up and started talking about, look unto me all ye ends of the earth and be ye saved. And you can still see in pictures that place, the the exact place in that building is a plaque there now where a young Charles Spurgeon trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior that day. And it comes about so often that way. But I used to always say, wow, if if I could get one or two like that, I'd just retire now. Of course, God doesn't privilege us always to see those things in advance. But here's Nathaniel, and he comes to Jesus, and he's at first skeptical. When uh, Philip first comes to him and says, Hey, we found him of whom Moses and the prophets have written, Jesus of Nazareth. And the moment he says Nazareth, there's just a, there's just a note of skepticism that grips Nathaniel. He, he says there in, in verse number 15, 46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How'd you like to be from from a place like that that nobody seemed to have much of an impression of? But that's kind of the way the question comes across. And so whether whether Nazareth had some sort of a, a reputation or something, we really don't know that. It may be more likely that Nathaniel was a person who was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and it just didn't strike him as quite jiving with that. After all, we're getting ready to come to the Christmas season, and we know that the wise men came, came seeking Jesus, right? And when they came to Jerusalem, which was the logical place for them to come, and they started inquiring about where it was that the Christ should be born... And they asked the Jews, the Jews knew immediately, Bethlehem. It says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem of Judea. Well, this is not Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee to the north. Bethlehem is in Judea, just to the south of Jerusalem. And so it could be that Nathaniel is thinking, look, you've got an obscure, out-of-the-way place. Nobody really thinks too much about a place like Nazareth. And, And how can you say that we found him of whom Moses and the prophets are writing? So... His first reaction is one of skepticism. You don't have to put your hand up, but let me ask you a question. Anybody here like that today? Not everyone is like that, but there are a lot of people who are. And you will run into a lot of that nowadays in this society. That's the first sort of objection that he raises, is he has to get over. He truly has to get over a certain amount of his skepticism. That was certainly true. How many of you know the name Josh McDowell? A number of you have heard of Josh McDowell. You know, today, Josh McDowell is probably, he's, he is one of the leading. He's certainly, there's certainly many of these, but 
he would be known as one of the leading Christian apologists of our day. He's been around a while, but he certainly has that, that background, and that's been his ministry. Do you know how it started out for him? He was a young man, a teenager, and when he thought about life and what he really wanted out of life, he just wanted to be happy. And when he was a teenager, he says that it seemed like everybody was doing church, so his first thought was, well, maybe, maybe happiness would come about in life. Maybe people find happiness in the church. And I don't know whether he got hooked up with the wrong church or what, but he, he didn't have a good experience with that. Many people don't, and so he became even more skeptical and looked other places. He thought, well, maybe the answer is education. And so he went to college, and he found that many of his fellow students and many of the professors there were also quite skeptical and frustrated and had many of the same questions that he did about life and how, how would you find happiness. So he realized the, edu- the, ed- the answer was not in education. He thought, well, maybe the answer's in prestige. And so he decided to join the party scene every weekend. And that, as so with so many other people who decide to do that, left him with an emptiness because you started all over again every weekend, and it just doesn't bring any real meaning or satisfaction to the life. Well, about that time, he was an early college student, and he had happened to notice that there was a very small group of students there, actually eight in number, but they had also two faculty members who were a part of the group, and he said he just could sense there was something different about those people. And yet he didn't really want to ask because he had the struggle of his pride to get over with, but he noticed that they were different. He noticed that they had convictions, and he, he kind of respected that. He said, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good thing that there are people who, who, who know something about what they, what they think and what they believe. And then he used this phrase, he said, and they were disgustingly happy, which obviously struck a chord with him because that was something that he had been pursuing in his life. And so he really wanted to know what made these people different. And a couple of weeks later, he happened to be sitting around a table with some of them, and they got to talking, and the subject of God came up. And again, isn't this exactly how we so often are? That pride and that skepticism welled up within him right away. And he, he said something to this effect, Christianity, that's for unthinking weaklings, not for intellectuals. And that was kind of his comeback, but... You know, it's kind of like a fighter that gets hit. You know, you sort of act like you're not hit because you don't want your opponent to know that he's landed a solid blow. And so finally, he looked at one of the students who was a young lady, and he said, tell me, why, what is it What are you so? What is it that makes you so different from other people? What, what, what is it that's changed your life? Without even batting an eye, without any hesitation whatsoever, that young lady looked right him, straight back at him and said, Jesus Christ. Well, it floored him because that was the last place on that college campus he was really thinking that anybody was going to say anything about Jesus Christ. And so, again, that skepticism and that pride welled up with him. And he, and he said, Jesus Christ, he said, I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. This was his attitude. And that girl looked right back at him and didn't miss a beat, didn't miss a blink. And she said, I didn't say religion. She said, I said, Jesus Christ. And those students and those two faculty challenged him that day, and they said, go see for yourself. Did you read in our text this morning, that's exactly what Philip did with Nathaniel. Sometimes you can't win that argument with people. You know that? But if you can get them to Jesus, that's a different story altogether. And Nathaniel said when 
uh, Philip said when Nathaniel raised that objection, he said, come and see. Didn't argue with him. Why well, prove it to you? He didn't get into that. No, he just said, come and see. That's exactly what the, those college students did that day. They just said, come and see. Search for yourself. You're going to find that he's the one who was described in the Old Testament. You're going to find that he's the one who came into the world. He died on the cross. He's the son of God. He rose again from the dead, and he's the one who can change your life. Well, you can tell by the, how Josh McDowell proceeded from this point that that, that was in him. That, that, that sense of doing something like that was in him. It's exactly what he did. He set out to see for himself. You know, I, I am really not aware of anyone who has set out to do that honestly and to really uh, confront the evidence. I'm not really aware of anyone who's gone away and been able to contradict it. And it overcame all of his skepticism. It overcame all of his doubts. He trusted Christ as his Savior, and look where he is today. He's one of the leading apologists for Christianity and for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know something? Nathaniel's struggle was exceeding brief. For some people, the struggle goes on a longer time, but it was exceeding brief. And what's really interesting about this is just how brief it is and just what it was that caused it to end almost, it seems, as suddenly as it was there, it was gone. And how does it happen? Well, Jesus sees Nathanael approaching. And Jesus doesn't wait for Nathanael to say anything or for, for Philip to say anything. He just says to him, Behold, verse 47 at the end, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And it's like a jolt of electricity goes through him. He's thinking to himself, How does he know anything about me? We have never met before. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And so Nathanael, that's what brings this question about. You look in the next verse. It says, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and saith unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Well, now a second jolt of electricity goes by through him because now he realizes that this person that he's had skepticism about, this person that was from Nazareth, this person knows a lot about him. He knows how he came to be there. Look at the text. It says, before that Philip called thee. He knew all about how it was that Nathaniel happened to be coming to Jesus to find out about him. He knew that. How could he know that? He knew more. He knew who he was. He said, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments because that word guile is extremely significant in that verse. He knows more. He knows where he was under the fig tree. And he knows more than that. He knows what he was doing. You say to yourself, well, all of that you get out of this? Well, yeah, because if you ask yourself, why was he under the fig tree? Obviously, he found it a shady place. He found it a conducive place. Almost certainly, he was thinking. He was meditating. Perhaps he was even troubled about something. Do we have any, can we make a guess? Do we have any solid evidence as to what that was that he might have been thinking about? I really think we do. That's why this verse is so significant when Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed is in whom is no guile. 
Because if you were to turn back to Genesis chapter 27, you don't have to do this unless you want to or you want to put the reference down. That's perfectly fine. If it helps you to look down and see it, that's good. But that story is when Esau finally came to his father and Jacob, remember, the supplanter, Jacob, the one who was deceitful, Jacob, the one who had guile in his life, Jacob, who became Israel. Behold, in Israel, light indeed, in whom is no guile. Well, when Esau finally spoke to his father after he saw that it was done, I mean, Jacob had snuck in, he dressed up like Esau, he'd gotten... On an earlier occasion, he'd already gotten the birthright. Now on this occasion, he sneaks in and he gets the blessing. He steals his blessing. And this is what he says. And he said, thy brother, this is Jacob. I mean, this is Isaac. And he said, thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. Now in the Greek version of the Old Testament, so if you're needing to read the Old Testament, but you don't know Hebrew, think about this. This is kind of an interesting thing because the Septuagint is the name of, of the Old Testament version in Greek, that so many of these people, even that we read about in the Bible, and the Septuagint is often quoted as opposed to just directly from the Hebrew text. For many of them that didn't necessarily know ancient Hebrew, this was their Bible. The Septuagint was, and when so when this word that we have here, subtlety. Thy brother came with subtlety and has stolen thy blessing. When that word in Hebrew was translated into the Greek of the Old Testament, it uses the exact same word, dalos in Greek. It uses the exact same word that Jesus said to him when he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. So that when you get the full force of what this is really saying, you wouldn't be doing any injury whatever to the scriptures to bring out the significance of how this impacted him and why it sent that jolt of electricity through him if you were to read it this way. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no Jacob. This begins to explain why when he pursued this, why his skepticism was overcome so quickly, and Jesus even says to him in verse number 50, he says, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And then you notice the way it concludes by talking about, He saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you hereafter, ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Do you know what that's a reference to? Jacob. In fact, it's in the very next chapter. If chapter 27 is the verse that has guile in it, the very next chapter, chapter 28, is the story of the vision that he has when he leaves home and he gets to the place called Bethel, you remember? And he puts his head down on that stone pillow. How he ever slept, I'll never know. But he saw that vision and he saw heaven open and he saw that ladder. Well, did Jesus bring that up randomly? Did he just think that was a good thing to talk about? No, I think when you put all this together, he says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no Jacob. And then he says, You're going to see more than this. And he refers to Jacob's vision. Well, I think the best conclusion we can come to from all the evidence is that 
Nathaniel was under that fig tree. He was thinking about that scene in Genesis chapter 28. Somehow, isn't it marvelous? Somehow the Spirit of God had prepared him. He was ready. His heart was ready, and he didn't even know it. God had been working. And I find it extremely tantalizing and interesting that I've told you this story already, how Augustine was also under a fig tree, Augustine of Hippo. He'd gone to that garden with his friend Olypius, and they had all those questions, and he too was someone just like Josh McDowell who had looked everywhere for the answers and couldn't find them. And he had gone, and they were in that garden, and there, there was a bench there. They were talking about the scriptures, and Augustine was overcome with emotion, and he walked off. He didn't want his friend to see that emotion, and he got a ways off, and he was under a fig tree, and all of a sudden he heard these children that, that seemed to be singing like a children's song, something like that. Take up and read. Take up and read. And he sensed that it was more than just a children's nursery rhyme, more than just a song. It was words he was meant to hear. And he got up from under that fig tree and he went back to the bench on which the book of Romans was open. And he looked down and there he found the passage at the end of Romans chapter 13 that the Spirit of God used to open his heart. And I shall see greater things than these to Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting how God prepares and God works these things out? This is why these jolts of electricity go through Nathaniel. This is what overwhelms him so completely. This is why it seems to us that Jesus just says one thing to him and, and Nathaniel says, Rabbi, verse 49, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. Just I mean, one, one verse he's questioning how this can be, and the next verse he's made a full-fledged confession of Jesus as the Messiah. How is it that he's, he's overwhelmed and it's, his skepticism has overcome so quickly? It's because he realizes that no one other than the Son of God, no one other than the Messiah could know everything about him, even though they'd never met. But the journey of faith, it begins. It begins with coming to Jesus. Let's hasten to our next thought. We'll take less time with this. But you know there is also confessing Jesus, which is exactly what happens. As soon as he, in his heart, comes to faith, as soon as in his heart the deed is done, it's off his lips. Look at it. Rabbi, verse 49, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Don't we find this in the New Testament? Isn't this exactly what the New Testament says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And the moment the deed is done in the heart, it's off the lips. Confession is made unto salvation. But confessing Jesus is a step that we all take at some point or another in our lives. It comes naturally, I think, to us when we have first been saved that we want to tell somebody right away, we're, we're, we're so in love, we're so enamored, we're so taken, just as Nathaniel was on this occasion with who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we, we, we just have to tell someone. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in your own life? Or it maybe has been a long time. And maybe we've kind of gotten away from that. Maybe we've kind of gotten over that. It's something to think about. Maybe we've left our first love. I don't know. Certainly, hopefully, in the days since, we've gained some wisdom about how to do this. 
but hopefully we've not gotten over the conviction that it's something that God would have us do. And it rolls right off his lips. Philip presented Jesus as the Messiah, and this is precisely, you might say to yourself, it seems like those words are an overreaction that he would confess, but then you have to go back and see what it was that Philip told him. Philip said, Behold, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets... And he knew this was a reference to the Messiah. It's the very same thing that Andrew had told Peter back up in verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. It's it's another way of saying the very same thing. And And then it goes right back to what we saw in the beginning of the message, John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And believing you might have life through his name. This is, this is the confession that he makes. It's kind of interesting that we read a lot about this in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 tells us something about this. We think about the confession that we make with our lips, and then we think about the confession that is... Something that God desires, that Jesus left with his church. We think about the confession, the public confession that he desires that each of us make following when we have come to faith in Christ, a public confession. And we find this. We find this exact pattern in the New Testament. Verse number 40 of Acts chapter 2, and with many other words did he testify, that's Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And look what it says the very next verse. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Fascinating, isn't it? The Lord desires us to confess him. Baptism isn't something you do in order to be saved. Baptism is something to do, you do because you are saved. And coming to the recognition and the realization that, you know, of all things, Jesus selected this. And you say, well, why did, he, why did he select baptism? Well, just think about it for a moment. It's symbolic, just like communion is symbolic. So think about this, because everybody understands communion, right? We have the bread and the cup. And what does the bread stand for? His broken body. What does the cup stand for? His shed blood. And those things refer to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're remembering that, his death, his redemptive death on the cross of Calvary till he come. Well, in baptism, what do you do? Buried with him by baptism, you go under the water. You don't want to go under the dirt. You go under the water so somebody can get you back up again. But it's like saying buried with him by baptism. The old life is in the past. His death on the cross was my death on the cross raised to walk in newness of life, just as it says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. And it's why we do this. And Jesus chose that on purpose because it was a way of giving a pictorial representation of what conversion is. The old life is in the past. It doesn't mean we're perfect now. If you're waiting around to be perfect, to be baptized, just forget it because you'll go to heaven dry clean. I was encouraged. I told you I... (laughs) I told you I've been reading this autobiography of Spurgeon, and I got to a part where he was giving reflections, early reminiscences on his ministry, and he's talking about people who believed in perfection, and he he basically categorically denied that that's going to happen in this life, and I was encouraged because I've always preached that too. But at the same point, Spurgeon was very strong with the idea that that doesn't give us any excuse 
We, we live for the Lord. We do what he commands us to do, and that's incumbent upon us as believers. And no one has a credible testimony who's living in sin. You might be saved, but you don't have the right really to claim it and have people believe that you are. But he gives baptism and because it's, it's, a, it's a representation. The old life is in the past. We're not perfect now, but we have a new life in Christ. And isn't this what the New Testament tells us? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So at what point in time we understand this? In the New Testament, it was almost right away because, you know, in our day, it's not always that way, but we certainly understand this is, the Lord left that for us. He, he chose that one thing. He, he said, I want you to do this and give that public confession of me. And this is what it says in Acts 2.41. You know, I read a story recently that uh, I, I, I could really identify with in terms of something that happened to me in the ministry, but it concerned a young, a young woman. Her name was Lorena Garlington. And she had accepted Christ as a young lady, really, but she just, for whatever reason, she just never got around to following the Lord and believer's baptism. And she, she knew she should do that, but she just wrestled and struggled and just never really got to the place. I can tell you, the longer you put it off, the harder it gets. Because pride just start, starts getting in there. Well, all these people think I'm saved. They, they, I've been saved all this time. And she struggled. You know what? When the Lord finally impressed upon her heart and overcame all of her objections, do you know she was just shy of 100 years old? It's amazing. It's amazing she lived that long, number one. It's amazing, number two, that she was in a condition that any pastor felt comfortable with baptizing her. And this is why I say we, we had an occasion in Huntington where we had a woman, I think it's got to be the oldest lady that I ever led to the Lord, but she was, she was very close to 100 herself, way into her upper 90s. And she got saved and she wanted to, know, wanted to join the church. And I said, well, you know, you have to be baptized to join the church. But I said, let me talk to the deacons because I already knew right now I wasn't going to baptize her. I mean, for her, you'd have to see her, but I mean as frail as she was, trying to get her down into a baptistry and take that risk that there might be something. And, and I said, you know, we're just sort of at the point, let me talk to the deacons because I think everyone understands your heart's in the right place. You want to do this, but it's just not a safe thing. This is just not a good idea. And we accepted her into the membership of the church, but you know something? She waited too long. This woman here, this Lorena Garlington, she waited too long, but... Thank God she was able. And then she said to the pastor, she said, because I know that the Lord wants me to be baptized. And then she commented to him, she said, this is the greatest day. It's the best thing that's happened to me in years. Well, I've said this any number of time over the years. You have to understand something. There's no magic in the water of baptism. You're not going to go in that water and get some kind of electric shock unless it's 20 degrees or something. Then you might. There's no magic in the, in the water. That doesn't get you into heaven. But there is blessing in obedience. Two steps down and one more to talk about. Coming to Jesus, confessing Jesus, and then continuing in Jesus. Nathaniel has already taken the early steps of obedience. He's submitted and opened his heart to the Lord. He's made this confession of Jesus. But there's more. We go back to being born again. There's more. You don't just stop when you're born. If you're lucky to live, it's all about growing up, isn't it? It's all about experiencing life. 
And Christianity is much the same way. If God leaves us here, it's all about being born again. And then he leaves us here and it's all about growing in grace, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter, this is exactly what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 50 in the end of the verse. Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? And look at what he says. Thou shalt see greater things than these. Greater things. Is that true? Is that really true? You mean to say that as we go on in the Lord, we will see greater things? Well, sure. Because the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we see, the more he ex- we experience in him, the more he shows us. And then he pulls that illustration out about Jacob just to show you. I'm going to show you one of the things you were thinking about Jacob. I'm going to show you one of the things that you're going to see. You know that story that you were thinking about? And there was the ladder from heaven. Right, we're down here and heaven's up, up there somewhere. I mean, you're talking about the heavenlies. You're talking about a spiritual sphere, but it's always depicted in the Bible as upright. So we're here, and we can't get there. No airplane is going to get you to heaven, right? I mean, we think in physical terms, but it's a spiritual realm. But for, for us to understand, it's always depicted as up, and we see Jesus ascending up and all that kind of stuff. So we think about that. Well, when you go out and look at the sky, you have no, you have no chance, You can't reach that. No airplane is going to get you there. The only thing that's going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth is a ladder. And that ladder is Jesus Christ. They're ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not the ladder, but on him. And more specifically, his cross. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. That ladder is Jesus Jesus and his death on the cross of Calvary, that's the only thing that bridges the gap between heaven and earth. It's the only way anyone can ever get to heaven. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to see more, more of these pictures in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in me. You're going to gain greater insights into who I am and what I, what I came into the world to do and what I intend to use you as my disciples to do. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So much more. How does that strike you today? I mean, probably nobody here is going to make the claim of being a great Christian. I wouldn't. But I would like to think that I'm making an effort by God's grace to walk with the Lord, to seek the Lord daily, and to grow in grace. I've been, by God's grace, trying to do that since, as it was with Nathaniel, since I made that confession. Within my first year in college, I made the decision to read the Bible every year. That's a lot of years ago now. That's not counting all the times I've read the Bible for other reasons. But, you know, I, it's not a, it, I mean, I wish it were more. I wish it were more. I'm sure it's approaching 50, but I wish it were more. I I would like to say I've made a conscientious effort. I hope that you folks can say that. I hope you can say that in your heart today. Think about it. Where are you? Because this is what the Lord wants of us. A little story in closing about this. There was a farmer, and 
a lot of people who knew him sort of grew very weary of the lame excuse that he gave all the time because he was, he was telling people he was saved, but everybody knew he really wasn't doing much with his Christianity. And his, his favorite little lame excuse was, well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm, I'm established. By which he just meant that, I know I'm saved. And, and how many people are there like that who just kind of, I'm, I know I'm saved. That's good enough, right? Well, one spring, he was doing some logging, and he had the team hitched up to the wagon, and he had a, a load of logs on this wagon. He hits a place in the road where there was some mud, and the first thing you know, he had that thing up to the axles. Those horses couldn't move that load of logs on that wagon for nothing. Long came his, one of his neighbors who knew that he often and was a little irritated every time he'd hear him say this about, well, I'm not making much progress, but I am established. <laughs> the neighbor said, well, Brother Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but you must be content because you're well established. <laughs> Ouch. Now we make excuses, right? And many times they're about as lame as that one is. And the Lord knows. The journey of faith. Where are you? There's coming to Jesus. Have you done that? There's confessing Jesus. Have you done that? Do we do that? There's continuing in Jesus. Are we doing that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this.